Church, would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank you so much that we are able to meet with you this morning. God, that we can come together as community, be able to see more about you. God, that we get to learn more through you, through your scripture. God, what a blessing it is. God, what a blessing it is to not fear persecution or fear what's going to happen next, that we get to meet here freely with you and worship you in freedom. God, this morning would, would I even disappear? God, would we just see you? Would we see the ways you're moving in the lives around us? God, would we see what your message is for us this morning, God? We love you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in fourth grade, I, uh, I was taken to Awanas for the first time. And you, you, some of you might know what Awanas is. It's not as popular as it is down here as I feel like it was when I grew up. But uh, I came to Awanas. And Awanas, certain levels of it started at different times in your life. But one of it started in third grade and it goes to sixth grade. And at the end, you get like an award for completing all these books they give you. They give you a bunch of books to memorize verses, scripture, books of the Bible, truths about God. And you do all that to get this trophy at the end. And so I came in a year late. I came in in fourth grade instead of third grade and I started Awanas. And so the first day there, they gave me the book and they were like, Hey, Kellen, here's your book. Go take it to the table with the other kids. You're going to memorize what's inside of it. I was like, that's great. So I get to the table, I open it to the first, first page and said, would you memorize these books? And it was all the old Testament. So from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, I've never heard of these books in my life. I don't know what these are about. Little do I know how to memorize these. And so my hands are sweaty. I'm gripping the book. I'm trying to read through it. And I go to present it. And I fail a couple times. And then finally, I go to the person to ask if I'd memorized it. He said, yes. And that was great. But then I look at these books and I realize... I now have these books memorized to like a song and tune or memorized to like something that helps me remember what's going on. But I have no idea what's in the middle of these books. I have no idea what Joel's about or Hosea or Ezekiel. I don't, I don't understand that. So what I'm saying this morning is you might have the same emotion coming into the room into a series like this of minor prophets where you might have heard these names. You might have memorized it for something Yet, what are these books talking about? Why do we study Hosea? Why are we spending two weeks in this book of the Bible? And so I hope through these next two weeks, I'm able to illuminate that for you guys, that the spirit inside of you would even show you more than what I say, what these books are meant for. And so this week in Hosea, we're going to split it up into two weeks, like Darren said. So Hosea week one, we're talking about God's love for us. And in week two, we're talking about God's faithfulness to us. And so in this week one, as we begin to study, I feel like it's important to know who our characters are in this book. That who are we looking at? What are the lives that are being impacted in this book off the bat? And so we start off and it gives us a description. In Hosea chapter one, verse one, we get a lay of the land of who our main character is. Hosea chapter one, verse one says, the Lord that came to, uh, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joaz, king of Israel. If you're taking notes with us this morning, uh, our first point is God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. What we look at this morning is we see a son, 
a father soon to find out, who has been in ministry for quite a long time. If we look at the list of kings he has there, it adds up to about 72 years of ministry that Hosea was doing. That's long. That's so much time devoted to one group of people, devoted to ministry for God. Hosea isn't mentioned anywhere out through anywhere else through our Old Testament. So our, our knowledge of him comes from this book. Our knowledge of who Hosea is comes from the book of Hosea. And so as we look at it, we see that for about 72 years he's in ministry, and about 38 he's prophesizing this book, what we have in front of us, the story we get to look through these next two weeks. All those numbers, all those things are to say that Hosea was a faithful servant of the Lord. That Hosea knew the call, he knew what it was, and he did it. Right? Hosea was one of the only, he was the only prophet to have come from the northern kingdom. Hosea, the northern kingdom being Israel, God's people, Hosea comes and lives within that neighborhood. So when he's talking about the Israelites, when he's talking about God's people, he's living within it. He knows it. These are his neighbors, these are his friends, these are his colleagues. These are the people around him. So Hosea talks about the Israelites and lives within that same context of what he's talking. In Amos, we hear God threaten the Israel with an unknown enemy to where Hosea in his book identifies that as Assyria. And so the lay of the land of Hosea is he's living a life for God in a kingdom where it's becoming unpopular. That he's living a life for God for 72 years doing hands-on ministry with the people around him as God shares what he has for them. Hosea got it. He got what the, he got what the point of it all was. So we, as we have the character of Hosea and who he is, metaphorically, we're going to set him right here. All right, don't forget about him. Don't forget who he is. Hosea will sit right here in everything that he is. And as we look to even the next two verses, we see our second character introduced, our main character who we'll be looking at through this study. If you read with me uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of the wife of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went into Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Gomer is our second character. We see Gomer, this woman who's, as the Bible says, living a, wife, living a life of whoredom. And God says, I want you to take her as your wife to display what's going on in Israel right now. What's going on with my people and how they're acting towards me. And I want that to be an image for them to have. If I were to go to any of you or anybody who loves sports in this room or anybody who knows basketball. And I said, put these in order, put LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and Kobe Bryant in order. We all would have different lists for different reasons, right? We all, who we grew up with, who we like, who we think is actually better, who we think's done more. We would have different lists, right? But none of us in this room could say, any of them weren't good for the game of basketball. Each and every single one of them impacted the game of basketball in a unique and separate way. So we can't talk about how great they are. We more talk about what our preferences are of who they are. The same is for people who study God's word. There are theologians who all over the world hold God's word very highly, but also disagree. And they're great at what they do. They're the LeBron Jameses of what they do. 
But there's some opinions we agree with, some we don't disagree, some we don't agree with. One of the things that comes up in Hosea is whether Gomer was a prostitute or living a promiscuous life. And theolog- theologians have great arguments either way. That Gomer because, was just living an adulterous life, committing adultery week in and week out over the span of context we get of her life in Hosea. While others say that she had to have been a prostitute because of the context of the religion she was in, the false gods she was worshiping, a, a tenant of that was prostituting yourself. So both are great opinions. Both, both highly revere the word. I'm not here to stand and make a claim on either of those. I don't, I don't want to stand and say which one I believe in or not. But I do want to say and make the assumption that I think Gomer was addicted to her sexual sin. I think the, the scripture points to, and the passages point to, Gomer's addiction to her own sin and the sexual acts she was committing. I think it shows that Gomer had a husband in Hosea, and she would have had all the protection she needed at that time. Or a family that gave her all the community she would have needed at that time. Or the inheritance that would have came with marriage. Money wasn't the issue. But yet Gomer saw everything, saw everything she wanted, saw everything she would ever need. And still said, what I want to do, the selfishness I have, what this sin is, I'd rather do that. The narrative we see of Hosea's life is supposed to mirror the one of the Israelites. And that comes back to the point I said earlier. God wants to use ordinary people for this extraordinary mission he has. That we have a father and a son of Hosea who is living the good life. He's on the straight and narrow. He's doing what God calls him to. He's doing it in an unpopular culture and he's doing it faithfully. And God uses him in that. He uses what he's doing. He uses his ministry. He uses his message. He uses it. And then we have Gomer who's not living what we would say is the straight and narrow life. She's constantly choosing her sin over what's good for her, over the kingdom she has. Yet God still uses Gomer in the grander story. I say this to even think about our lives on today of where we're at. That wherever we think we're at of being on the straight and narrow or on this side of we're going sideways, whatever afflictions, sins we have in our life right now, would we know that God wants to use all of it? That God wants to use you, you uniquely, wherever you're at, for his greater story, his greater mission that he has for the world. And so as we have Hosea and we have Gomer, we can get into the meat and potatoes of what Hosea is. As we, as we look in Hosea chapter 2, we get kind of a, a narrative, a summary of what's about to happen to the Israelites. And it's, it's hard to read at times because a lot of it is going to be worse before it gets better. And so as we see the summary, we can see God's plan for these this people, his people, his people he's deemed his. And as we read it, I want to draw our attention to what Hosea is. Hosea, the book, is poetic. It's written in poetic format. So a lot of the sentences and stuff used are artistic and means to draw our attention to stuff. So as we read that, there is a discerning that has to happen of, is this poetic or is this literal? And so as we read that, I'll help us point us out to that as we come up to the main points. But if you're taking notes with us, our second point today is God promises reconciliation. 
that God desires, he wants, he promises reconciliation. Hosea chapter 2 reads in verse 1, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Hosea chapter 3, we begin to see the switch. Chapter 1, we see the description of Hosea and Gomer's marriage. Chapter 2, we begin to see this switch of what happens. If, through the poetic language, Hosea is not talking about Gomer anymore, although she still uses these as the example. He's now talking about the nation of Israel and what they've done and what's in store for them because of the adultery they've committed to God. That now we have a relationship of the Israelites and God being in relationship with each other. And because of the Israelites committing adultery to God, this is what's in store for them. And honestly, admittedly, up here, reading these verses is kind of hard. These are hard verses to read. These have provocative language in them. And I think it's on purpose. I mean, through the story of the Bible, we see other verses that draw our attention to this provocative language of describing how God's people have left. What we see in Judges 2.17, it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And Isaiah one twenty one even mentions how the faithful cry has become a whore. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who, has full, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. These are hard verses. These are tough things for us to swallow. But this is how intense it is, the severed relationship between man and God. That in Hosea, we see God's people committing adultery to God on a constant basis. To where God says, I can't... I I can't see this anymore. This is what's going to have to happen to you. The Israelites cheat on God and this is the outcome they have for it. We continue in verse 7 seeing the similar narrative where it says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, this is God, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and gold, which was used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And continuing in verse 13, it says, and I will punish her for the feast days of Baal, and she will when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Doesn't pull his punches. He just tells it how it is. This is what's happened. This is what you've done. And this is where we're going because of it. 
That I, in the end of this, God makes it pretty clear that you've done this. So now I, since you've forgotten about me, I have to forget about you. I can't be a part of that. I've given you the perfect way of life. But now, Israel, that you're doing this, I can't be a part of that. But rightfully so, right? I mean, we look at Israel and we see the things they did. And we go, man, yeah. God, God was right in that. Because of what Israel did, because of the lives they lived, God had nothing else to do except that. He had nothing else to do that says, I will forget you now. If that was the end of this story, if that was the end of Hosea, if Hosea was only two chapters and it stopped at verse 13, this, this would be so sad. That would be the worst ending to the story ever, but it's not. We see what happens in chapter 3 within the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leash of barley. God says here, Hosea, through Hosea, go and take back your wife. Although I know she's done this to you, I know she's living a life of Fordham, I know she's cheating on you, I want you to go back and purchase her back to yourself. Make her your wife. Why? Because that's who our God is. That our God desires reconciliation. He doesn't desire it to be separate. He doesn't desire there to be a path between us and him or between his people and him. He doesn't desire there to be a break between it. He wants relationship and he wants reconciliation to his people. Even to the extent of him showing it to the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. In chapter 2, we see his plan for reconciliation for his people. Starting in verse 16, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will call me uh, my ball or in other translations, my master. For I will remove the names of my master from her mouth and they shall be remembered by the name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me uh, in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And I will sow her to myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And that's just chapter two of Hosea. That we can look over the, cross, the, the entire Bible, over the narrative of what the gospel is, and we can see that God, time and time again, desires reconciliation for his people. He doesn't want it to be separate. He doesn't want us to be away from him. He desires a relationship to be mended. That's who he is. That's the gospel. The Israelites did not deserve what was coming for them. Gomer did not deserve the love Hosea showed her, yet they got it. Yet they sit in it, yet they sit and know the truth that Hosea loved Gomer no matter what, and then God was going to love Israel no matter what. When I was, uh, well, 
some of you guys know this. I didn't grow up in Southern California. I actually grew up in uh, the Central Valley, Bakersfield. Um, and I loved growing up in Bakersfield. It was awesome. Uh, don't get me wrong. It was such a, such a great place to grow up. But I tell you this this morning to let you know that as a child, there was absolutely nothing to do for fun. There was nothing feasibly possible for us to do for fun as kids. I mean, I hear stories of uh, my friends now that I live down here who were like, oh yeah, I'd get out of school and then my mom would drop us off at Disneyland and we'd spend the night at Disneyland. Just a reality I didn't have, just a reality I didn't understand. And so uh, at a young age, I began to learn that like, if I want to have fun, I got to kind of create it for myself. I got to learn what, uh, what I have to do to create fun. Um, I learned this because in kindergarten, we had what was a, a playground. And I put that in quotes because it was, it was called a playground. It was uh, a, lot, a lot less than that. We had like a slide, a place to climb up the slide, and then a big field. And so as a kindergartner, you could go up the, like, the ladder thing that it was to get on the slide. You could slide down the slide, and then you could run around in the field. And that was about it as a kindergartner. And so it was like, ah, well, two days into school, you can only run so aimlessly in a field and slide down a slide so many times before it gets old. And so uh, as a day comes around where me and my buddy are so hungry for something fun to do, we're, we're, we're done running aimlessly, <laughs> we're done sliding on the slide, we're like, we got to find something fun to do. And walking around at recess and we see a stack of lunch fails. Uh, what happens was when we would leave for lunch, uh, we would have recess beforehand, but we would leave our lunches outside the classroom. So after recess, we would grab our lunch and go take it to where we ate lunch and eat. And so we saw all the lunch fails out there like, dude, stuff that's not our stuff. Let's play with it because that's what we're supposed to do. And so we grabbed the lunch pail, similar to this, and started throwing it like a Frisbee, right? Back and forth, back and forth, until we discovered that you could do this. And we were like, oh my gosh, we can touch the heavens with this thing. And so we then proceeded to figure out Newton's three laws of motion through this instant with lunch pails. The Newton's first law of motion says that if a body at rest or moving at a constant speed and straight line, it will remain at rest or keep moving in a straight line at a constant speed unless it's acted on upon by force. It's pretty awesome. Didn't move. It kept going up in the straight line, down the straight line. It was great. Didn't act on anything else. Law 2 states, it states that the time rate of change of the momentum of a body is equal in both magnitude and direction to the force imposed on it. So that meant that we could throw this in the air and drop it, but then throw it higher and higher and higher until it got about the height of the roof next to us. And we were like, whoa, we can throw this thing so high. Thank you, Newton, second law. Then we move to the third law, which I think is the lamest law that Newton gives us. But uh, Newton's third law of motion states that when, a body, uh, that when two bodies enact, they apply forces to one another that are equal in magnitude and opposite in direction. It's the law that states like why this Bible sits on this podium, that the podium's taking force and the Bible's taking force that are o- acting in opposite directions. So it stays on the podium. It doesn't fall through. It doesn't, the podium doesn't fall apart. That's what's happening. Right? And so we're throwing these lunch pails, Newton's second law, as high as we can, and more force, more gravity, and then it just doesn't come down. 
the, the lunch pail, this lunch pail, uh, the lunch pail similar to this, gets stuck on the roof. My heart sinks. Not because I just lost my best friend's G.I. Joe lunch pail. Not because my best friend doesn't have lunch that day now and has to try to figure out as a kindergartner where he's going to eat his next meal. But because I knew my parents were going to be mad. I was like, oh my gosh, I ruined my friend's lunch. My parents aren't going to understand this. Like, I can't tell them. So what I do, I didn't tell them. I just went home. My mom was like, what'd you do at school today? And me and my friend were like, well, I, I told her, me and my friend, we came up with this new game at lunch. We were bored, so we came up with this new game, and it was awesome. And went to my room and did my homework. And that was it. And I thought I was going to get away with it. Until now, in this point in my life, I know this, but parents talk. Um, I didn't know that as a kindergartner. I thought like my friends at school stayed at school. They didn't come home. And so um, my, uh, his mom calls my mom. I was like, oh, how silly is it that, that Kelly got Dominic's lunch pail stuck on the roof? And I was like, what? What do you mean? Got stuck on the roof. So now I'm in trouble. And I, I won't forget this, what my parents said to me. I won't forget it. I, I came into their room and they're like, Kellen. There's going to be consequences for what happened. You lied to us. You tried to hide this for us. There's going to be consequences. But we want you to know that no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, your dad and I will never stop loving you. And I was like, man, that stinks to be grounded after that sentence. But that's true, right? We now with Hosea have to hold this tension. We have to hold the, the verse that says in uh, verse 19 of chapter 2 that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. We have to hold that right here and know like there's going to be good that happens. He's never going to stop loving them. But in this hand, we also have to hold the reality that there's consequences for what's going to happen. That because of what they've done, it can't go unpunished. If you're taking notes With us today, our third point, our third and final point is God does not let sin go unpunished. That we we have to hold the tension of like, it'll be great, but there's stuff that has to happen before that happens. Through a larger chunk of Hosea, we see the charge, the judgment, and the punishment that's in store for the Israelites. We see what's about to happen to them. We read in chapter 4, if you want to follow along with me, starting in verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of a God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and, it's, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea, are taken away. Yet let no one contend, let, no one, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophets also shall stumble with you at night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected my knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also forget your children. The charge is set out in front of the Israelites, right? And for my visual learners, I'm going to write a couple of them down. That we see in this before that Gomer has committed adultery, right? 
right? And that the Israelites have worshipped false gods. They've also lied and they've murdered. God charges them with these things. He shows them like, hey, this is what you've been doing. This is what you've done. I'm laying them out in front of you. So none of us can have a question of what's going on. That I've seen this, you've done this, you've broken the law, and this is where we stand. There's also a point in there where he talks about that the, the beasts of the field or the birds of the sea are going to be affected by this. And um, that's we have, us having to remind ourselves of the poetic nature of Hosea. That Hosea is still poetic literature. And so when he brings up the, uh, the, fish, uh, the fish in the sea and the beasts on the field, and that he's talking and trying to draw us attention to even the narrative of Genesis, something like Genesis, where God uses uh, a flood to cleanse the earth and get and restart, right? That because of the sin of the people who lived in the world, that he's showing that it affects the world around them. That our sin, what we have, what we deal with, the sins we commit, affect the world around us. The sins I committed before I was married to Hannah still affect me and Hannah's relationship, right? That's how sin works. It whittles its way into things and messes it up for a long period of time. It affects not only you, but the world and people around you. So Isaiah is showing this, that this sin, what the Israelites have done, what they've committed, it's affecting the world around them. It's also affecting their relationship with God. Chapter 5, we get to see the judgment. In chapter 5, it reads, Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare in Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me, talking about the tribes of the nations. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and Ephraim shall stumble in guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With the flocks and the herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. I know you hear alien children, and you think this is definitely what NASA's talking about, this recently in news. Um, In other translations, alien children is uh, looking at illegitimate children. That because of their sin, they've now borne illegitimate children to the nation. They're not God's people because of what's happening. And so because of this, because of what they've done, there has to be an outcome. That the outcome now has to be, there's charges put against them, the judgments created, which leaves us to what's next. If this is the judgment, if this is what the Israelites have done, if this is where we stand, then what's next? 
Chapter 8 shows us the charges. It says, uh, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. For they sow the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall field no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up already there among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. And in 14 it says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built places. And Judah has multiplied and fortified the cities. So I will send fire upon the cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Israel's addiction to, them, to their sin, their addiction to what's going on, has now created separation. That because of this sin, because of what we do, because of the sin that the world's created, the world committed, because of the choices we make that are selfish to ourselves, the reality is that it separates them from God in every situation for Israel, for Gomer, and so on and so forth. And what that means is that there has to be punishment because God is so perfect. He's so holy. He's so great that he can't even be in the same context as that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains the justice of God will not tolerate sin and his holiness demands the punishment for evil. Our sin, the sin of the unfallen wor- of the fallen world separates God because of how holy he is. And so when Israel sees this and does this, they now know the reality is without payment, without punishment, without something to happen, I am separated from God. But once again, like I said in, in point number two, if we can come back to the reconciliation of God, can you blame them? Can you blame God for this? I mean, we look at this whiteboard, we see it all. Adultery, worshipped, false gods, lied, murdered. The Israelites, Gomer, they did all of this. Could we blame God for the punishment he was putting in front of them? It's easy for me to go through a sermon like this, to go through a study to listen to something like this and think, man, I know the Gomer in my life. Man, I know the person who needs to be just adjusted back onto the straight and narrow. Or man, I know the Israel, the person who's gone wayward after they've been given everything. I know who they are and they just need to be pushed back a little bit. Or even I, man, what a, what a great guy I am to be the Hosea figure. To be the person who goes and shares the truth, shares the faithfulness. Man, let me put myself on a pedestal. When in reality, this isn't the truth I'd argue for any of us. That our reality is that me plus my adultery, my lusting after others, creates separation to God. Right? Me plus any of my sin separates me from God. That translates everywhere. That I plus worshiping false idols, my title, my pride, my worship, my, uh, my platform, my... Uh, reputation to others, me worshiping that and thinking more about that than God is what separates me from him. 
Mean plus my lying, my deceiving, my, my ways of lying to myself, lying to others out of own selfish gain. That's what separates me from God or even me plus my hateful heart. Me plus the ways I have a jealous heart and don't think about others. Me plus the ways I have murdered others in my heart. That's what separates me from God. See, the reality is when we look at this whiteboard, when we look at this story, we aren't anybody but Gomer. Our reality is we deal with sin on a daily basis that separates us from God. And God cannot let sin go unpunished. So where does that leave us? Hosea uh, chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 says, Lord, the Lord said to me, go again and love the woman who is loved by another man. And is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leash of barley. The reality is God desires reconciliation for us. Not just Gomer, but that's who he is. That's a characteristic that doesn't, that doesn't change. So this, this reality that we look at on this whiteboard, this fact of we are separated from God, we are, uh, because of our sins, we are committed to this, isn't real anymore because we know the truth. The Israelites didn't have it. They were promised it. We'll talk about it next week. But we know who the Messiah was. We know that Christ came, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again defeating death so that this whiteboard doesn't have to be a reality. That when God sees us, he doesn't see anything but the cross. That our 15 shekels was a man's innocent blood spilled for us to reconcile and restore the relationship we have with God. That the reality is that if we give in our life to Christ, and when we do, that this is the whiteboard our God sees. This morning, I want to draw our attention to what that means for us. That in the Israelites, they didn't know the Messiah. They didn't know Christ. But what does this mean for us? Our God wants to use ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. Wherever you are in your life, what, what sin you're dealing with, what turmoil you have, God wants to use that. You're not disqualified. You're not made unable. You're not unfit. But God desires to use you and your story. You uniquely. God promises reconciliation. That's what he gives us. We live in the reality of seeing the promise fulfilled. That God said, I have an opportunity. And he gave his son for us. That we desire, he desires to be in relationship with us. And all we have to do is admit that our ways are wrong, that we've been selfish. And we want to turn from that and commit to him. And he offers reconciliation for us. Reconciliation for the sins that have happened. And God cannot let sin go unpunished. Is the reality that we live in. That Christ, what he did for us was enough. And so you sit in this room and you might think, well, how can I, how can it be me? How can it be I? You don't know what I've done. God does not let sin go unpunished and Christ dying on the cross was enough for you. So you don't have to feel the shame. You don't have to feel any part of it, the regret anymore because what Christ has done for you is enough. He says, I know you're addicted to your sin. I know you're adultery. I know you're cheating on me, but I love you. 
And I want to be with you, no matter what. That's the reality we live in this morning. Would we sit in that the rest of this week and know that that's the reality of where God sees us in relationship to him? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that that is true. God, that your love for us, it's bigger than anything. God, that your love for us uh, is steadfast. It comes again and again and again, even when we don't deserve it, even when we haven't done it. Even when we have messed up, God, and we're addicted to our sins admittedly, God, your love tramples all of that. God, this morning, would you help point us to that? Would you not point us to shame or regret of our sins? God, would you point us to the cross and what your son has already done for us? His love for us was enough. And we don't have to sit in the reality of not thinking that. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.